You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Ever since the 1960s, with the rise of the hippies and the student movement and the Black Panthers and gay liberation, the Bay Area has had a reputation as America's most liberal metropolitan area. That's one of the reasons why media, especially conservative media, pay so much attention to what happens here. Every city, every region has problems. But when the Bay Area has problems, it's held up as proof that progressive policies don't work. Or, more specifically, that leftist policies will lead to a hellscape of crime, homelessness, drug addiction, etc. The so-called doom loop that's been getting so much hype lately is just the latest in a long line of narratives trying to make the case that progressivism will essentially lead to Armageddon. San Francisco spent years letting dealers and junkies do whatever they want while they defund the police. And that turned the city into a murder magnet. Of all the bad places I've been to in the United States, I don't know if I've ever been to a city that's as vastly run down, abandoned, and out of control as Oakland, California. It's one thing to pay exorbitant taxes. It's another thing to pay exorbitant taxes to watch your city degrade into a hellhole. When you're constantly being bombarded with these kinds of messages, it's easy to start believing them, to buy into the idea that everything around here is getting worse. And I'm certainly not immune to this. So whenever I start getting down on the Bay Area, I like to do something that reminds me of why I love this place. Often that involves going for a walk somewhere with nice views, somewhere like the Berkeley waterfront. So a few weeks ago, I was walking around the area, the Berkeley waterfront, and I was going from McLaughlin East Shore Park, which is a protected nature area, into Cesar Chavez Park, which is more recreational. And I was stunned by how beautiful everything looked. Kids were flying kites, birds were everywhere, old people were walking their dogs, clouds floating gently over the Golden Gate Bridge and Mount Tam off in the distance. And then it hit me, this waterfront, these adjoining parks are a perfect example of a sort of anti-doom loop narrative. This area was a hellscape that was transformed into a kind of paradise. See, for most of the 20th century, not just Berkeley, but the entire East Bay shoreline was a dirty and dangerous wasteland. Literally, Berkeley's waterfront was an official municipal landfill, but factories stretching from Emeryville all the way up to Richmond used the bay and the shoreline as a dump. Up at Point Isabel, you can still see shards of porcelain all along the shoreline where a local dishware manufacturer tossed their rejects for decades. And that's one of the most benign examples. Far more common was toxic waste in the form of heavy metals and other chemicals that are still present in the soil. And okay, this wasn't meant to turn into a rant. Uh, what was I talking? Oh yeah, progress. Thinking about the transformation of our shoreline from a leaky landfill to protected parkland and a wetlands preserve made me curious about the history of the old Berkeley dump. So I tracked down and interviewed a handful of people who had deep connections to this area, going all the way back to the 1960s. And what I discovered, it really surprised me. Turns out some really incredible things were able to grow, to emerge out of that toxic wasteland. So today's episode is a bit like one of those old-timey patchwork quilts. And uh, here's a preview of the stories I've stitched together. First, you'll hear about a family who fled from Jim Crow era Texas to find prosperity, and even build up a bit of a mini empire out at the Berkeley landfill. Then you'll hear the stories of several interconnected Berkeley institutions that were born out of friendships that were made at the dump. And you'll hear how these respective institutions went on to influence the environmental movement, the home architecture and design industry, and much, much more. Okay then. 
strap on your boots and put on your gloves because today we're going to the dump and you never know what you might find. Maybe even a few reminders that the Bay Area isn't actually the worst place on the planet. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. Okay, I'm Margie Ellis, and I'm 82 years old. I'm also the mother of seven living adults. I have uh, approximately 100 grandchildren. I've been in many supervisory roles, although I'm self-educated. So I've had a long list of being in business because of my mother's skills that she taught me as we worked the Berkeley dump. If you went to the Berkeley landfill between the 1960s and the 1980s, you probably saw Margie Ellis or someone else from her very large family working at the drop-off pit. She's retired now, but for many years, Margie, along with her mom, brothers, children, and other relatives, were the unofficial managers of a very unique kind of business. But let's take a step back first. Margie Ellis, she was born in Texas during a time of racial segregation. Seeking better opportunities in the Golden State, her family headed west shortly after World War II. But what greeted them here was not encouraging. Coming out here, that didn't work well because uh, my dad was, he was actually a mechanic and he would train people to work, and when they got out here, you know, they treated them, you know, black again. And so it just wouldn't work. And so we ended up in the fields, you know, uh, tomatoes, uh, walnuts, and all like this. And I was a child, and I would cry all night. Back in Texas, everyone in the family had jobs and side jobs. When he wasn't fixing cars, Margie's dad also cut hair. Her grandma ran a boarding house and sold hamburgers. Her mom's main gig was teaching, but somehow she also got involved in salvaging scrap metal. This particular skill set came in handy when the family arrived in the East Bay and was faced with employment discrimination, racism, nearly everywhere they tried to find work. They couldn't find steady jobs, but they did have a truck, so Margie's mom figured out how to make ends meet by hauling metal out of local landfills. So Evelyn Fuller, she would meet with the owners, the bosses uh, of these particular sites, and she would let them know certain things like how the metal parts of machinery and appliances and everything were destroying the big machines. And so if, 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 you know, if they were allowed to take it out, they wouldn't have to be repairing those machines too often. So that kind of like got a foot in the door and everything like this. So once they observed and find out we, it was a real honest family, they didn't have no problem with that. We just went there to get what we said we were going to get and we would leave. Then You're talking about going to the Berkeley dump? Berkeley dump. Uh-huh. So the, and it, get going there to get metal parts from... Yeah. Okay, gotcha. The um, appliances. Uh, okay, See, yeah. anything large... Mm -hmm. would the big equipment cannot hit it or even mash it oh i so see what you're saying so like the the dump the grinders and things like that yeah. the dump they couldn't deal with the yeah. giant appliances and so when they're pushing okay. this load of garbage mm -hmm. if there's anything metal in there and and it's unseen it could really damage the machinery. Okay, yeah, like the, the tractors machinery. and things like that the, the cats, yeah, okay. the caterpillars and mm -hmm. all that. These kinds of arrangements were always off the books. The family got to keep the scrap metal they pulled out of the dump, and the landfill managers got dangerous objects that could damage their equipment, hauled out for free. Margie's mom worked this hustle all over the Bay Area. There were a lot of landfills around here back then, but the family's relationship with the Berkeley dump eventually blossomed into something much bigger than just removing old appliances. We not only moved 
the metal parts and because we knew how to we were taught by mother how to recycle okay so we had to really learn how to make this living so we not only re the word recycle wouldn't even in the picture right because this was what back in the 1960s yeah okay. early 60s mm-hmm. but um we went there to load the trucks with the throwaways mm-hmm. that nobody wanted here's how it all got going once the dump's official manager realized that he could trust the family to essentially run things, he basically let them take over some of the day-to-day operations. Besides removing dangerous objects, they were also responsible for repairing equipment, smoothing out the surface layer of trash, and directing incoming traffic. Their paychecks came from whatever they could salvage and sell. When you see someone come in, if they're older, and they got a large load, they're gonna need some help in dumping anyway. Mm-hmm. So we would put the ones with the appliances into the area where someone could help them put the appliances to the side. If it was just somebody dumping, we would offer to help, and then we would, you know, dump. And if there were things we could use, you know, we would take out. If you saw something valuable, The goal would be keeping it out of the pit. Unfortunately, that didn't always happen. Most of the time, we did have to go to the pit. Some people just did not want us to touch it. They wanted to throw it in the pit. So you had to climb down into this 30-foot pit? Yes. We were in very good shape. That sounds kind of scary. You know, I didn't have a fear till I left the dump. There were all kinds of explosions and fires. And if you hit the refrigerator, it's got all that mercury in it. Uh, You know, they tear it apart to get the metals out. But anyway, if you hit it the wrong way, all those fumes come out and everything like that. But I was not fearful. This was a form of necessity. We had to eat. We had to feed our children, you know, in, in long hours. Oh, my goodness. It, it was just such hard work. Besides the lack of protective equipment and a real salary, there were other challenges the family had to deal with. By the late 1960s, they were living in North Richmond, and their home became a kind of de facto repair shop where Margie's husband would work on the electronics he'd saved from the pit. To the local police, this all looked more than a little suspicious, as Margie would learn the hard way after she called the cops for something unrelated. I don't know why I called them that day, but I called them. And at that time, I had a husband who repaired TVs. Okay. And we had a room full. <laughs> I'm calling the police, and he here, looking at all this like he didn't come to a house with where people are fencing something. <laughs> I had to explain to him how I worked and we got these TVs, and he would pair them, and we sold them, yeah. you know, and all this kind of stuff. They were so relieved. <laughs> it took me, though, 15 minutes to even tell him what I called him for because, I mean, he was ready to really just arrest me, you know, for having all this. And this is the way our homes were for many years. We, we'd hoard it for real because this is the way we made our living. Yeah. If the wet TV looked like it would work by us taking it home, he, he could fix it. Wow. And so this was like 50, probably like 51 years ago. Wow. So you know when people saw all this accumulation, they didn't know. They didn't know about how people black were re, redoing something, reselling or recycling or whatever. In the early years, Margie's family was mostly scavenging metal, lumber, electronics, and other obvious commodities. But after Margie started reading up on antiques, she learned to look at those piles of would-be garbage with a more discerning eye. And she trained the rest of her family, people like her daughter Ruby, to do the same. There were real antiques. Mm-hmm. And, and, Ru- and Ruby, say something about these antiques. Early on, my mother taught us how to look for Mickey Mouse memorabilia, antique uh, 
bottles, the blue vase, the pink uh, glassware, also all the um, the old logos and the uh, advertisements they were looking for. Coca-Cola. Identifying valuable vintage items wasn't the only skill her kids picked up from the family business. When Margie was showing me some pictures, she told me that one of her daughters sort of <laughs> learned to communicate with birds. See, when Margie couldn't find childcare, she'd sometimes leave her kids in the car with the windows rolled down, and um, <laughs> I'll just let her explain. The one there in the red sweater, she would um, talk to the seagulls. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of birds out there, huh? Yes. Oh, those, it was some beautiful birds. But the seagulls, they, they would just come into the car that day, and I had never seen that before. And I said to myself, you know, and always leave the window down yeah. and everything because I had two babies there. And uh, I said, what is happening? What has happened? They over there going toward the car. So I had to run over there from, you know, that the pit was long. So I had to run to see at the end why the seagulls were going to the to the car, and the closer I got to it, I, I would hear her mimicking the the birds. And so she was calling them, and she didn't even know it, and they were coming over there to see what was happening. And I had to really go and close the window up and sit there with them a while and everything, and we were still looking at them, you know? So, like, your, your daughter spent so much time around the seagulls that she learned how to speak seagull? Yes. <laughs> So we, you know, it was really just a, a real learning experience out there. You got to realize this. By the late 1970s, the dump was proving so bountiful, the family was able to open a thrift store in Richmond to resell all the goodies they were finding out there. According to Margie's daughter, Ruby, some of her cousins were a bit ashamed of the family's connection to the landfill. But for her, it was a source of pride. This family business brought us money. And this family business would buy us nice clothes. And my grandmother would drive a nice car. And we could work at the thrift store. Now, not everyone was willing to go to the dump as a young teenager and pick things up. But some of us would. And when we learned the importance of it from my mom and my grandmother, she taught us about antiques, coins, bottles, Rockwell paintings, mm -hmm. oriental rugs, furs. We found a lot of things. People threw away fur? Yes. In yeah. empty chests. Yes, they did. Cedar chests. Yes, so we found a lot of treasures that uh, we would keep. And the fact that we had a business and a lot of other people in our neighborhood did not have a business, um, we were excited about that. During our conversation, Margie and Ruby told me that the family was able to share their prosperity with the whole community. For example, Margie also saved tons of children's books from going into the pit, and she'd distribute these to families. They also ended up hiring a lot of former prisoners who couldn't find work anywhere else. This kind of generosity even earned family members some uh, <laughs> interesting nicknames. They yeah. call my mother the bed lady. When we come to Oakland, they call my husband the bed man. Why? We provided so many beds to people. So many beds to children. We helped people. During the years that Margie's family worked out at the landfill, society's relationship with so-called garbage went through a paradigm shift. For one, people began to realize that dangerous toxins buried in landfills didn't just stay sitting at the bottom of a hole. These chemicals leached into the surrounding water, like the San Francisco Bay, for example, which is what eventually led to the state-mandated closure of the Berkeley dump. But another thing that happened is more and more people started adopting the concepts of recycling and reusing not just for environmental reasons, but because they realized there was money to be made. As you'll hear later in this episode, Berkeley ended up being a real pioneer in this space. Margie watched this transformation happen in real time. It was some very educated people coming. University of California was the, I mean, yeah. Berkeley was the national educated place 
you know, but they needed money also. So when they would come out there, I would teach them how to sell things because they could get more once I researched it because they would go and research it further. Okay, so I'm I'm really curious about this. Like, what were you teaching them? Like, what were the types of things that you were teaching them how to find and sell? Okay, it would be art. I read every book came out there. It would be um, antiques. It would be uh, the furniture. I mean, this is how Alameda got started. Alameda Flea Market. You, if you, you know, if you've read about flea markets. Just to clarify, she's saying that the early vendors at the Alameda Antiques Fair were finding things at the dump to sell at the flea market. Not that the actual uh, fair itself started at the dump. Uh, anyway. As the landfill wound down its operations in the early 1980s, the family transitioned into running a landscaping firm and then a private security business. Now in 2023, all these years later, Margie is happily retired, living out in East Oakland. But some of the people who she crossed paths with out there at the end of University Avenue are still in the recycling and or salvaging game. You'll be hearing from some of them in a minute. Stay tuned. Recycling has become so normalized that it's easy to forget it's a relatively new phenomenon in the modern sense. Curbside pickups, different bins, recycling laws, All these developments happened within the last few decades, and Berkeley has been at the forefront since the beginning, starting with the kinds of eco-conscious students that Margie Ellis got to know out at the landfill. Nowadays, of course, recycling is a major industry, but it all began with grassroots organizing. The Ecology Center, a Berkeley-based nonprofit, was one of the first groups to evolve out of these scrappy efforts. The Ecology Center's executive director, Martin Bork, is a little too young to remember the early 1970s, but he knows this history well. His mother moved their family to Berkeley in 1973 to be a part of this growing environmental movement. Here's Martin explaining the role of the first Earth Day in 1970 in bringing people together. One of the things that Earth Day also had was a sense of volunteerism that um, everyone should get involved and do something. And one of the things that people could do up immediately was kind of cleanup efforts, shoreline cleanups, and um, recycling became part of that. And in the late 60s, early 70s, a bunch of recycling drop-off centers grew up between Ecology Action and then later um, Community Conservation Centers, CCC. And then um, this idea that, well, if we're really going to make recycling work, we have to make it easier for people. And that means going to their homes and getting it before it gets mixed in with the garbage Mm -hmm. and having people separate it at the source, what we call source separation. Um, And so um, the Ecology Center, uh, actually Ecology Action folks uh, put together a grant proposal to the newly founded EPA and got an initial pilot project to collect bundled newspaper once a month uh, with volunteers, flatbed pickup truck, and uh, many of the volunteers were actually conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War, Um, so there was a a kind of ready labor force. And they collected newspaper sort of neighborhood by neighborhood with this one pickup truck and then sell it, and it went, um, the major market for it was uh, to make egg cartons for the egg industry uh, in the poultry industry up in Petaluma and Sonoma County. So it was pretty pretty local, yeah. um, pretty closed loop. And uh, over the years then that became, you know, weekly collection and adding cans and adding bottles and uh, eventually adding mixed paper and cardboard and, um, and then certain kinds of plastics. So um, the modern recycling industry grew out of nonprofits like the Ecology Center and community-based efforts. 
while Berkeley was beginning to transform its relationship to garbage by facilitating or at least allowing recycling and salvaging, not everyone was so willing to accept this shift. Dan Knapp is one of the co-founders of Urban Ore, a kind of mega thrift shop that started out at the Berkeley dump. But before Dan came to the East Bay in 1979, he was up in Oregon. And when he tried to get the landfill managers up there, to adopt systems that would divert recyclables, they saw his proposal as a threat to their bottom line. The people that ran the whole thing were uh, waste people, and they make their money by wasting. And we are trying to make our money by conserving. So we're out to essentially take away their life's blood, <laughs> which is to say all the stuff that they deliberately destroy. Right. And we're trying to conserve it. Dan is 83 years old now. His salvaging career started when he volunteered to make dump runs for a local food co-op. The experience opened his eyes, but it also almost led to tragedy. At the time, the landfill was just acres of filled up stuff with dirt on top. So you're dumping into a pit down over an edge down into a hole, and then that hole has to be scooped out every so often, which they do with a bulldozer. So I'm standing up above in my truck, taking my time to dump everything, and while I'm taking my time, I'm looking at everything that's coming out of everybody else's car and thinking, hmm, what is this stuff? Oh my gosh, this is, look at that. Oh, there, there's something really wonderful. And, and then it goes into the pit. Well, after a while, I started thinking, why am I just standing here saying these things? Why don't I just try to save a couple of things? So I, was, I leaped off the edge of the, the, of the pit. And I remember one of the things I picked up, there was a box of orange cans that split open when it landed and all these things came tumbling out and they were little fuel cans. Well, I thought, I know lots of people that are going to want those. And there was nobody around. None of the county employees were around, but there were these signs saying no salvaging allowed. So I'm breaking the rules and I knew it. And, um, I'm down there and I'm throwing them up to anybody that wants them. And all these people came crowding over and I'm throwing them up to these people and they're catching them and going back to their vehicles and everything. And I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty neat. Well, that led to more. I mean, once I had done one, I started doing it more often. I always was a little bit worried about the county employees because they were They'd be standing around, they had that bulldozer, and I figured at some point they'd probably come over and tell me I had to stop. But that didn't happen. Instead, what happened was something quite different. I was there one day and there was this big pile of sawdust and I could see these four by four timbers sticking out of it. And they looked like they were brand new. They looked like, wow, those are really in good shape. So I thought, well, I'll just go over there and back up to that pile and I will throw it onto my truck and get out of here. So, <laughs> so I go over to the pile and back up and start, start in, you know, throwing, hauling out all these four by fours. They were off cuts. But then I noticed this uh, guy all in white, he was coveralls and everything. And he went to his um, bulldozer and fired it up. And then I could see that it was running because it put out a dense cloud of black smoke. And he climbs on it, you know, he's, he's on it now and he's backing up and then he whirls around and he's about three or 400 feet away. And he starts coming in my direction, but he's actually looking like he's going somewhere else. So I didn't think very much about it until he got about 60 or 70 feet away, but he was at a trajectory that was gonna carry him right past me. And I thought, well, okay, so that's what's gonna happen. 
No. What happened instead was he locked the treads on the bulldozer. That's the way you turn things. The bulldozer suddenly whirls, and all of a sudden it's pointing at me. And he raises the blade and starts coming at me with it, 50 or 60 feet away. I'm thinking, oh, shit. <laughs> I'm going to soon be the detritus <laughs> part of the landfill. So I jump in my truck, slam the door, just as he went, you know, right by, probably five feet away. A uh, very dangerous thing that he did. I think he was just thinking, I've got to stop this guy from breaking the rules. The rules are here. The rules are there. I, it's my job to keep him from doing this. Uh, it didn't make any sense, but so what? You know, I've got my orders. Earlier in his career, Dan Knapp had been a sociology professor. But when he decided to pivot from academia to, shall we say, hands-on environmentalism, he quickly realized that his options in rural Oregon were limited. So he took his last $40 and hitchhiked down to Berkeley. Within a week of getting here, he had a job salvaging and reselling metal down at the landfill. Working at the dump day after day and having a front row view of all that quote-unquote garbage helped Dan formulate a vision for what would eventually become a lifelong goal, helping to create a zero-waste society. I thought that what was needed was somebody who could understand and interpret what all this chaos was and turn it into knowledge that you could use to create a waste-free society. Because here's this landfill. It's a, just one of thousands of landfills all over the world, it turns out, that all kind of look the same when you go to them. And they are doing the same sort of thing, which is to say, mashing it all up and making it into landfill. So it's destructive disposal. Meanwhile, what we want to do is constructive disposal, or we want to do conserving disposal. It's still disposal, but it's a different kind of disposal. And so that was, that was the business model, I, I thought. Along with some of his friends from the dump, Dan launched Urban Ore with a business plan of essentially saving and selling things that might otherwise be wasted. Everything from old kitchenware to secondhand clothes to construction materials. They've had some ups and downs over the years. Uh, most recently, ownership was accused of retaliating against labor organizers in their workforce. But since Urban Ore opened in 1981, They've certainly saved countless tons from the landfill. And uh, Urban Ore also helped establish municipal composting in Berkeley in the early 80s. Back then, Dan's concept of eliminating waste completely sounded, well, kind of crazy. But moving towards a zero-waste system is now the city of Berkeley's official policy. And as of 2014, they were about 75% of the way towards that goal. There's still a long way to go. Plastics, for example, are a major problem. And uh, Berkeley is just one mid-sized city. But Berkeley's progress, it created a model, a pathway, that many others have followed. This outcome was not always a foregone conclusion. In fact, at a pivotal juncture, Berkeley almost went in the completely opposite direction. Instead of investing in recycling and composting, in 1980, city council voted unanimously to build an incinerator. And if that's not bad enough, the incinerator would have been located in West Berkeley, where the prevailing winds would have pushed gross harmful emissions all over local residents for decades to come. It seems almost impossible to fathom now, but this plan was incredibly close to becoming reality. What happened was... We got into a fight with the city because the city, you, you think of Berkeley as a very progressive kind of place that's all about democracy and everything. That's not how they, they approached this decision. 
Instead, what they did was they, behind closed doors, they knew that this was not going to be popular to build a garbage burning incinerator. But they thought that because it was going to create electricity and everybody's all concerned about the, where's the electricity going to come from, that there would be, uh, that would be a winning issue. Okay, we'll, we'll burn it and yeah, it destroys everything, but we'll call it recycling anyway, because after all, we're recovering energy. So it's, we'll call it resource recovery which really offended the hell out of me yeah. uh, because they were appropriating a word that belongs to us. So we have this clash going on. And uh, the BRG, we said, no, we can't let this happen. The BRG that Dan just mentioned was the Berkeley Recycling Group. It was a coalition led by Urban Ore, the Ecology Center, and Community Conservation Centers, another local recycling group. To make a long story short, they organized a major campaign to block the incinerator, which led to putting the issue up as a ballot measure the following year. After a lot of community outreach and education, the BRG's proposal to block the incinerator in favor of a recycling-oriented approach, it won with 63% of the vote. And it also helped launch the career of Nancy Skinner, who currently represents Berkeley in California's state Senate all these years later. Here's Martin Bork again, explaining how this victory reverberated far beyond the East Bay. That uh, laid the framework and the groundwork. It, it basically put a, a moratorium on incineration and set source separation and recycling as the path forward. And out of that came the first source separation plan as part of a municipal solid waste planning element, which is required by the state. So we were the first to have that sort of embedded in the solid waste political infrastructure yeah. right. of the city. Right, so basically that was the birth of the kind of recycling system that still exists to this day. Yeah, prior to that, <clears throat> it had been a nonprofit with some uh, city and early federal support running independently and trying to get people to voluntarily uh, separate mm -hmm. certain types of materials from, from their waste. Um, and at that point, um, by stopping that incinerator here in Berkeley, it also sent a chilling effect to 19 other facilities that were planned around the wow. Bay. And not a single one of those got built after we stopped this wow. one in Berkeley. That's amazing. And so um, really this idea that every city would have an incinerator and just burn its waste uh, died with yeah. that ballot measure in, in, in the early 1980s. Um, by the late 1980s, there were enough cities running recycling programs and calling for recycling and source separation and waste reduction to be how we deal with our waste, that in 1989, a state law was passed, AB 939, that basically required every city in the state to have a source reduction plan to divert 50% of its waste from landfill. And you couldn't do that without recycling. So mm -hmm. that law basically made every city and county in the state have a recycling program. Nowadays, recycling just seems like common sense. I mean, sure, there are definitely kinks in the system. Problems like cross-contamination between different materials can be a headache. But almost nobody is arguing against the concept of diverting reusable waste from landfills. So it's important to recognize that this massive cultural and infrastructural shift it didn't just happen by accident. It took a ton of organizing. And in Berkeley, it happened just in time. When the landfill finally closed in 1983, the city's brand new recycling center was up and running. As one era ended, a new one was just getting started.
In the early days of Urban Ore, one of Dan Knapp's original partners was a guy named Steven Drabinsky. After they parted ways, Steve became the owner of another shop in Berkeley that sold used goods. The place was called Omega Salvage. But unlike Urban Ore, which sells a bit of everything, Omega was more focused on vintage home furnishings, doorknobs, sinks, tiles, you name it. When I visited Omega earlier this summer, they were just getting ready to close down for good after nearly five decades in business. But I wanted to make sure to include them in this episode because as you'll hear in this final segment, the trajectory of this business, Omega's rise and fall, illustrates some meaningful trends in the construction and design industries. The former owner, Steve Drabinsky, he passed away in 2012, but I was able to talk to his widow, Catherine Davis, who ran the business after Steve died. I started off by asking her about, what else, the shop's connection to the Berkeley landfill. Yeah, the reason uh, Steve went to the dump, because he, he had graduated from UCLA with an architecture degree. He was um, in a class that he was learning to do solar. And so he went to the dump one day, and he asked the guy who was sitting at the dump if he had any copper pipe. And the guy said, come over here. And he opened up this trunk, and there were all these beautiful cut pieces of copper pipe. And Steve went boogie-eyed, because he was so thrilled that he could get out of the dump. And then they were talking and talking about waste. And then he said, well, by the way, I'm g the guy that was there said, I'm going to leave my job. Do you want my job? And Steve said, sure. And I don't know how long afterwards, but he started to do that little recycling part of the first part of the dump. And that's what got him going on salvage stuff. And of course, he is an architecture yeah. student. And his father wasn't too happy that he was then working in a dump, but he never looked back. Steve Dobrinsky bought Omega Salvage in 1986, but Catherine's husband wasn't actually the business's first owner. Omega was originally started by an earlier generation of guys who were connected to the Berkeley landfill through their work in the local salvaging scene. Their names were Victor Lab and Bob Ford. Here's Steve Smith, a former long-term employee of Omega, setting the scene for what was happening around the Bay Area in the early 1970s when Vito and Bob first started working together. There was a lot of urban renewal projects going on that were basically tearing down existing old homes to make room for new housing developments. Basically, Acorn in Oakland, the, what they call the Western Edition in San Francisco, those took place over the bones and debris of Victorian homes uh, that were established neighborhoods. But the projects that were happening um, were doing so uh, by basically disposing of everything. And so all the homes, everything, the, the lots were being cleared in a typical way, which is everything was being bulldozed and taken to the dump. And Vito and Bob didn't like stuff like that, and neither did a lot of their friends and acquaintances. Vito and Bob were part of the environmentally conscious counterculture. But contrary to the stereotype about lazy hippies, these guys were incredibly hard workers. They were absolutely appalled by the wastefulness of contemporary culture, and they wanted to challenge it. But they also saw an opportunity to make some money while doing so. This impulse was the seed that would eventually grow into Omega Salvage. Here's Steve Smith again, explaining how it all got started. Bob and Vito had noticed that the, the Navy had put out for bid the demolition of the World War II era barracks on Treasure Island, Oakland Army Base, um, Maryland Naval Base, and they put it out to bid. And so they, on June 4th, 1974, they, on the stereotypical na uh, napkin, drew up a, a basic deal to put out to bid for the demolition of these barracks. Um, but with the idea that they would save everything rather than, or as much as possible, rather than, um, you know, throw it all away. And they knew by doing that, they would have a good chance of winning the bid because they weren't having to pay for all the dump fees and haulage 
yeah. for taking everything and taking it to the dump. And what kind of materials specifically would they be salvaging from buildings like that? Well, these are wood frame buildings. They're built very quickly, but they're built to military standards. And in the military, there's no privacy. So when you're taken in um, for basic training, you don't have your own little space. So the barracks are broad and they average about 40 feet wide. So to make that, uh, you need big timbers to do a clear span. Um, back in the day, they used full dimensional wood. Nowadays, they'll do they'll do trusses, they'll engineer trusses where you can take smaller pieces of wood, put them together with um, you know plates and everything like that, and make a, a long structural truss out of a minimal amount of material. But back in the day, they were taking old growth Douglas fir and you know three four hundred year old trees, big big trees and cutting them up and slicing them up for all the joists because you had to have clear span joist and clear span rafters to go across a 40 foot opening. Um, <clears throat> they knew the value of that and hell the value of that now it's like you can't get it for love or money. Uh, huh. it's, it's, you know, the trees that big are largely gone and or in protected forest. And so the trees that are now used are considered farm trees. Basically, and this is a great value of UC Davis, over time in the, with the timber industry, they came up with a way to get a dug fir to market in about, oh God, 30 to 40 years where it used to take you know, nearly 100 um, because they just engineered the trees and they, you know, they're not as nice because the, the growth brings are much wider. They're tree farm trees. The tree farm trees, but yeah. they get to market much faster. And yeah. so you're not having um, to wait as long and you're not having to devastate a forest by clear cutting. Um, but anyway, um, this old growth lumber is extraordinarily valuable um, because it's tight grained, it's really strong, um, beautiful, beautiful looking wood. So they knew the, the, the value of that. And so- um, And the military was just fine with throwing it all away. The military is, yeah, the military is one of the barracks down. They want it down, being the military in the US government, they want, it's the cost of the taxpayer. They want it done as cheaply as possible. Yeah. That's all the military cares about. Wow. And this is 1973, excuse me, 1974. Uh, we're largely out of the Vietnam War, but it's, you know, there's still sort of involvement there. And because we hadn't, you know, 75 is the final year. Um, so anyway, they got the, they successfully won the bid because they were essentially low bidder. Um, they didn't really, and, and Bob at the airport, as they're signing the agreement, he goes to Vito, he says, he goes, Vito, you know, I've never taken part in anything bigger than a chicken coop before. You know that, don't you? And, uh, and, and Vito, you know, Vito understood, but you know, Vito was a very smart guy. Yeah. And so they just, you know, they just all figured they'd figure it out. And so as they went along and they sort of did. But when they got onto the job, at least at the Oakland Army base, there was a young Navy lieutenant who was put in charge of monitoring the contract. Well, you know, just not too long out of the Vietnam War, this is still the way the military was operating, was that you're not making your bones in the military and getting your bona fides by looking over a salvage contract. So this lieutenant, Vito could tell, was not excited about this prospect. Then, you know, you, you made your promotion, stuff like that, for like being in, involved in combat or something like that, where, you know, high pressure, high whatever, that's where they're going to get the confidence in you as a leader. So this guy, know this was like kind of a dead-end job, and he was not terribly interested in it. So he went up to Vito and goes, well, you know, how do you plan to do this? And Vito, in his most earnest-looking face, looked at him and said, very carefully. And that apparently satisfied the lieutenant, because they didn't see much of him ever again. Um, but Vito was like in a, uh, one of the original kind of hippies. He wasn't real big on rules, even though he wasn't. He had spent time in the military. And so one of the big rules is that don't sell the stuff directly off the property to customers, which we weren't supposed to do. And we did because it was the most efficient way. Because the customer contractor comes onto the site. We're taking the 2x12s the off the building, putting it directly onto his truck. He's paying for it and going. That's the most efficient way to do it. So even though we were not supposed to do it, we were doing it that way. Um, don't tell the Navy. So, so they got started that way, but they also knew they needed a, uh, needed a building. So just a couple blocks up the street here on um, the corner of Bancroft and uh, San Pablo, there's an old brick building. That's the original location of, of um, Mega Salvage. And uh, the crew lived in the building. Again, they weren't supposed to because it's not set up for, for living. Uh -huh. And that there was an open lot where that self-storage unit is now. 
that was an open lot. That self-storage um, um, business did not exist. It was uh -huh. built later. And so they had the stuff in the yard that was bulky that needed to be sold in the yard. And then the, the nicer stuff was inside the brick building. And of course, they're illegally living in the building. Um, and then um, they basically just got along for the first, oh, I guess, four years. Uh, and then in 1978, the property across the street, 2407 San Pablo. Oh, just just real quick to so pause there. So they were mostly selling wood, and then were they selling also like fixtures? Well, and yeah, stuff like fixtures. That, yeah, the doors, the windows, everything. Anything, anything that was of a value that could be resold was being resold. And, and then, uh -huh. and, and through the contacts they were making, through the contractors selling, they learned of other pro projects and properties that were needing demolition, and so buying, selling, trading, you know. As Omega grew throughout the 70s and 80s, they were perfectly placed to capitalize on the growing backlash to disposable culture. During this era, a lot of the former hippies were starting to buy homes, and they wanted these homes to reflect their values. In contrast to their parents' generation, when new and futuristic was the fashion during the forward-looking 1950s, trendy Bay Area liberals history and character in their furnishings. Instead of knocking down old Victorians, more and more people started restoring them. In 1979, a PBS show called This Old House, all about vintage home restoration, premiered. And soon, it became a breakout hit. Omega Salvage got a huge boost when This Old House came for a visit to the Bay. That's how Omega Salvage got to be in this building is um, in 1997, um, we were featured on this old house. And so when they came out to San Francisco, it was one of the first times they had traveled away from it. And they um, found a, a young couple who had bought a Potrero Hill church and were turning it into a um, residence. Wow. And they came to us looking for some really nice, unique old sinks. And we ended up selling them, I think, two or three sinks. And of course, it was on, ca on camera. And after that, our business literally exploded. It was also coincided with the dot-com boom. Oh, yeah. The very late 90s. Yeah. And so, and... A lot of new money coming in, a lot of new people coming absolutely. in. Absolutely. And uh, and they were, you know, of, still of the tradition where they had a lot of appreciation of old stuff. Yeah. Even though they were in maybe computing and, and, and high-tech, but they're, they, or, they didn't get raised completely in right. high tech. Or if not an appreciation, at least a recognition of this kind of right. status. But but the, as kids, they weren't raised in mm, high tech. Yeah. And it's the people who are home who homeowners now are raised in yeah. high tech. They've had high tech their whole lives. Uh -huh. That's all they've ever known since they were small kids. Yeah. And so that's a I think that's a big a big uh, changing aspect of how they look and view and react with the world. Well, I think there's also this reality now that um, two or three generations ago, if people, you know, move to a city for a career, they might expect to stay in that city for the rest of their lives and yeah. raise their kids there. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, I mean, look at the way Silicon Valley operates now. Everyone who moved here five or 10 years ago is moving to Austin now or- Five years. Denver, yeah, things five just years, kind of- Five years is the average staying because that's the average contract requirement. You can't cash out your stock options until you've yeah. been with the company at least five years. Right. So, so, I mean, you're not gonna spend five years on a construction project if right when it's done, you've gotta pick up no, stakes exactly. and move to the next boomtown. Yeah. Modern culture's tendency to be more nomadic, less tied down to one place, is just one of the reasons why Omega's business has been falling off in recent years. They also had less inventory coming in. It's not like people are just throwing away, uh, I don't know, vintage chandeliers and clawfoot tubs like they were back in the day. And uh, also, I'm no expert when it comes to home decor, but it feels like the dominant interior design trend these days is a kind of chic minimalism, you know, like the Airbnb aesthetic. Check out fancy design magazines, and even billionaires look like they're living inside fancy Apple stores these days. Styles change. Anyway, the bottom line is that Omega Salvage wasn't making financial sense anymore. So earlier this summer, Catherine and Steve closed up shop. But you know what? They had a good run. 49 years ain't too shabby for a business that had its roots out at the old dump. Oh, and uh, speaking of the dump, let's take it full circle here and wrap things up with Steve Smith's earliest memories of the Berkeley landfill. He started working for a contractor in El Cerrito back when he was only 16. And as the youngest member of the crew, it was his job to make the dump runs. Even though it was decades ago, 
he still remembers the place vividly. And what were your impressions of the dump, spending so much time there? It was there? crazy there because there was always heavy equipment moving. There were seagulls everywhere. Um, there was, it's a windy spot. There would be stuff blowing up out of it, you know, dust and papers and all kinds of debris. And it'd be blowing in your face. And it was... And then, you know, you know, there were people down there to sort of guide you where to go, but a lot of times, you know, the, you're, you spread few and far between. And, you know, you're driving along and you, um, you get flats because of all the nails in there and, and, uh, and, and, and you just couldn't believe all the stuff that's getting thrown away. Um, you just start to realize just how much as a society we truly waste. It was just, it's, and you're looking at, you know, that whole park, Cesar Chavez Park out there, everything out there is landfill. Yeah. Actually, technically, everything from about 7th Street here to um, the freeway is all landfill. This is all filled in. The natural shoreline used to be around 7th Street, yeah. um, so which is only about three blocks from here. Mm -hmm. So um, all this stuff has been built on fill. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's also fascinating at the same time because all this, everything you see, you're looking at, you know, it kind of has a story if you only knew it. Yeah, you know, so it's like, yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting time, and then it was a lot more casual before waste management took it over. At the very, very end, waste management took it over, and that's when they put in a scale to weigh all the trucks that came in and everything. The old days, there was this really nice uh, African American woman who worked the the checkout, and you drive up there and she go, you know, that looks like about five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Gave her five bucks away yeah. it went, and then yeah. waste management took over. They weighed every truck down to the every last pound. Yeah. yeah, and they started checking the checking the load. No, you can't throw that away, you know, and all this sort of stuff, which you know yeah. they should. Alright, that's going to do it for today's story, but before I even get to the credits, I just want to say that there is so much more to the history of the Berkeley landfill than what I just covered today. Like, at one point, the landfill was going to be redeveloped as a mall on stilts. Uh, that got shot down, and uh, the whole story of how the park was created and the wetlands restoration and everything, it's such an inspiring story. Um, there are tons of resources out there if you're interested in learning more and I will link to some of them at my site, eastbayyesterday.com. But most importantly, I want to give some special shout outs to the Chavez Park Conservancy, Bay Nature Magazine, and the Berkeley Historical Society. Also, thank you to Martin Nicholas, Carl Anthony, Norman LaForce, and also Zach Farber, the managing editor of Berkeley Side, which is another great site that you should all check out. Um, okay, as always, a massive collective thank you goes out to everyone supporting East Bay yesterday on Patreon. Uh, most of the people chipping in are doing, you know, $3, $5, $10. That's okay. I love small donations because it all adds up. And uh, it also lets me know how much you all appreciate the show. Um, so every little bit helps. If you're interested in uh, becoming one of my Patreon supporters, you can find the link to the donate page at eastbayyesterday.com. And another way you can show your appreciation is by getting an East Bay Yesterday hat or t-shirt from Oaklandish. This limited edition merch will not be available for very much longer. So if you want one, or if you want to get one for the local history fan in your life, look for it at one of the Oaklandish stores or in the hometown collection on their website. Okay, the uh, music for this episode came from Pacific Bells. If you dug it, you can find more of their music at the Pacific Bells Bandcamp page. And uh, I thought they were an appropriate choice for this episode's tunes because uh, their music, it was inspired by this region's coastal landscapes. So yeah, big shout out to Jason for letting me use those gorgeous songs. Pacific Bells Bandcamp, check it out. Thanks again for listening. Uh, if you like this episode, please share it. Uh, you know, podcast apps have all these little sharing tools. You're probably listening to the show on your phone right now. Just do me a favor and uh, click one of those tools. Send it to someone who might dig it. Uh, this show, it's all word of mouth, basically. It's all spread by people like you. So please tell your friends and family to check out East Bay Yesterday. Uh, if you want to see one of my upcoming events, you can sign up for my free newsletter. That's at eastbayyesterday.com as well. 
uh, I'm going to be doing something about Mountain View Cemetery uh, right around Halloween uh, at the Oakland Library. That's going to be a free event. Uh, the details for that will be in my newsletter. And uh, that's about it for this episode. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue, and this has been East Bay Yesterday. <laughs>